But I am happy to be with you this morning. We're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 12. And one of the realities presented in our passage this morning is the challenge uh, associated with ministry, with missions in particular. And what we're looking at in particular is persecution. And it's something that we may mildly experience in America, but as you know, Christ Church is universal, and the church universal is heavily persecuted. I think you know this. Uh, in, in researching this, the subject, though, I came across some interesting statistics uh, that, uh, for example, persecution grew steadily and consistently uh, for the third year in a row in 2016, and even recent reports say the same thing, that we are, have reached in many places of the world unprecedented levels of persecution, particularly in Asia. Uh, another study suggested or reported that in 2016 alone, 90,000 Christians worldwide were killed. Now, I imagine you didn't read that many or see that many spots uh, on CNN and on the local media uh, of this problem, of this crime against humanity. And yet, uh, we have reason to believe this is true. And yet also, what I find interesting is that in these countries particularly, where people of God, uh, of faith in Christ, are being most persecuted, the gospel is growing the most as well. That this reality, uh, frankly, is one of the greatest privileges I have uh, of seeing the gospel grow, of being involved in ministry. We're going to have a man from India named Vijay Raju at our church just next month for our Reformation Worship Conference. And he is, along with others, working and training pastors and starting a new denomination, the Reformed Churches of India. And uh, they have just a modest response at this point. There are only 14,000 or more churches that are interested in coming into this denomination. To give you a little perspective, in the PCA, we're regarded in America as a relatively large Presbyterian denomination. And we have roughly speaking, 1,400 churches. Uh, and yet where Christ's church is persecuted most, I find it very, very motivating to see the growth, to read the reports of what we hear on the mission field. And that is really the subject of our passage this morning. You could boil it down to two simple truths. We see in here persecution, and yet we see the growth of the gospel. And so with this in mind, let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your words, and we ask that they might bring comfort in it as we consider the harvest that is white, that the fields that are white for harvest, we might be encouraged to, to pray, to give, to do all that we can to build this great kingdom of which we're a part. Lord, encourage us in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the imperial guard and to the rest of those that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Well, the first portion of our passage answers a simple question. What can we expect as the gospel expands? What can we expect in missions? And the first point we see in verse 12, notice, is there will be difficulties. There will be persecution. Notice uh, we read, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Now, what's he talking about? Well, it's very clear from verse 13 and verse 17, Paul is in prison for preaching Christ. In fact, his, his reputation, not to mention his body, had taken a beating throughout the Roman Empire as he had traveled. He had been falsely accused. He had been imprisoned. He had been stoned. And he had gone before local rulers and governors to give a defense. He had been falsely accused. And Paul is most likely writing from a prison in Rome. And this is because of the references in our own passage to Caesar's household and the imperial guard, suggesting that this is Rome. If you're wondering, where does this fit chronologically in the book of Acts? He's probably right there in chapter 28. Though imprisoned, it says he's allowed to preach the gospel. But let's face it, prison is prison. You're not free. Uh, the bottom line in, in Paul's case is this is no small trial. Uh, he would suffer certainly from loneliness, longing to, to live a, a regular life, longing to see his friends, his family, eat normal food. But he and many others are proof of one thing that we can expect in missions, one thing that we see. Uh, persecution will come. And frankly, that's why elders and pastors and missionaries have to be established and grounded in your faith. If you've just become a Christian, it's easy just to assume that, well, this message is going to be well received. People are going to want to hear about Christ, dying for their sins and taking them to heaven, but it's actually not the case. I think this is a big part of why many missionaries come home after a year or two years. It's a well-known fact that many Seminary graduates, most will drop out after two to four years of ministry because it's difficult. The, the expectation is not met. But if we understand what it's supposed to be like, a biblical ministry, what it looks like, persecution is very common. And Paul is a good example of this. But while they're suffering, notice what else he says here. He says there's progress. He says that the gospel is going forth. It is succeeding. And notice again in verse 12. He says what has happened to me is advancing the gospel. You see this again in verse 13, 14, and 16. Time and time again. Progress through great difficulty. What God's enemies meant to hinder and to even stop the gospel, God is using to actually advance the gospel. I think we have here what John in Revelation chapter 6 pictures as a white horse whose rider had a bow and a crown and who went out conquering and to conquer. It represents the gospel progressing throughout history. And I think it's easy to forget this when we read of trouble and persecution. But Paul reminds us the gospel is conquering nations. It's converting men to Christ. And there will come a day that every knee will bow to Christ or they'll suffer the penalty for their sins. And this is Paul's secret to contentment. Even in the worst of circumstances, it's all a part of kingdom expansion. And we'll look at 
specifics in a moment, but I hope this would be a, a great cause of comfort for you. If you're a Christian, uh, everything that happens to you is a part of God's kingdom. In a bigger story, it's a part of God expanding and building his kingdom and bringing the nations to Christ, even the difficulties that you and I face. And think about this reality in light of the daily burdens that you bear. It may be an illness. It may be a difficult marriage. It may be the rebellion of one of your children. Maybe a season of depression and loneliness. The good news is that the kingdom will prevail, the gospel will prevail, and all that happens to us, though not good, will be used to build this kingdom. But Paul is highlighting one clear implication of the progress of the gospel hill. He's reminding them that the gospel is not bound to the fortunes of one person, of, of great men like himself. And this is the clear implication He's telling the Philippians to not think for one second that the kingdom is somehow grinding to a halt because its great leader Paul is imprisoned. I think it's a good reminder for any day. Have you ever wondered and thought, well, what are we ever going to do when this great Christian leader dies? When that missionary or this professor or Pastor Smith, when he moves on, what will happen to us? Well, Paul, notice... One of the greatest leaders of all time says in verse 12, what's happened has advanced the gospel. The work goes on and it progresses, whether he's inside prison or outside of prison. That's a comfort to him and to the people at Philippi. My wife and I sometimes have to remind ourselves of this as we struggle. We look at the church, whether the broader church or our own ministries, we wonder what the Lord is doing. We have something we say to each other often. We say, relax. You're not that important. And we don't mean it the way it sounds. It's not really an insult. It's a great comfort to us. The gospel grows with or without us. If we were asked for time to endure sickness or inactivity or disappointment, it's okay. Because we're not indispensable to the mission. And as we read on, we see specifically why the work is growing. And I think it's related to the first expectation. It's related to persecution. But notice what else is happening in verse 14. It's part of the growth of the gospel. Paul says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, are much more bolder to speak the word without fear. And the preachers of Christ were growing more and more bold, not afraid. I find that very interesting. What Satan and what Paul's enemies intended to stop the preaching of Christ had the opposite effect. People are talking more. Paul's imprisonment is motivating other preachers. They're being sent out. They're boldly testifying because of Paul's persecution. I think it's fascinating how this works. One person's persecution and faithfulness influences another. Again, that's one of the greatest blessings I have as one of the pastors at Midway serving on our missions committee and getting to know and see the faithful witness of some of our missionaries. We have men and women that we support who have been beaten, imprisoned, have had their land seized because of their testimony to Christ. And they continue to fight for the kingdom. They don't grow weary. And you know what that does for me? It used to make me feel guilty because we don't have it that hard in America. And I have a, a television. I have a comfortable home. But you know what it does now in time? 
It encourages me. It motivates me to pray, uh, to give time and, and money to support men like this who suffer and who bleed for Christ, to pray for these brothers and sisters. It makes me want to live below my means, to give, to be kind, and to be generous as this church in Philippi was. It's a good challenge to us all to not spend all of our money on ourselves, to be kind and to be gracious. And this type of inspiration that we see here has been happening throughout church history. Many of you know the name Hugh Latimer, the Cambridge professor, the Bishop of Worcester in the 16th century in England. Uh, some of you may know that he and many others just like him were persecuted under Mary, Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary. But some of his last words have had the same effect that Paul's testimony has had. They have inspired generations of Christians after him. He said as he was being burned at the stake with his colleague, he said, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. He says, be a man. Play the man, for this day we shall light by God's grace a candle in England that I trust will never be extinguished. You know what's interesting is I don't know any seminary student who don't, who don't get taught this man, who he is, and what he did. And if, if you wonder why Presbyterian types make so much of the Westminster Confession, it's because men like this bled and died for it, for the gospel truths that it contains. It wasn't a century later before that document, that summary of the gospel was articulated lawfully, that God had done such a reformation in England through the martyrs, through the Ridleys, through the Latimers. And so the gospel won't be extinguished, not through persecution. In fact, it will embolden people. Perhaps not everyone, but it'll never slow down. And so as we move on, remember this. Persecution will come, but it will lead to expansion. Expansion will bring more persecution, and that will lead to the inspiration of more preaching. But as we read on, notice another expectation. I think this is a great comfort. We see that the, the lies are being replaced with the truth. Notice verse 13. It's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You know, as the gospel goes forth, people begin to separate the truth from fiction, appearances from reality. And see what he's saying. Don't worry about the slander that you hear about me. And no doubt he says this with joy in his heart. You know, the Jews who had rejected Christ and had convinced many other people that, that Paul was an evil, divisive man, he says, people are finding out the truth. The gospel is bringing clarity. He's in prison preaching the gospel. We know this from Acts 28. We read this uh, probably where he wrote this very letter in Philippian, to Philippia. Uh, we read in verse 30 of, of Acts 28 that he lived there two whole years. He proclaimed the kingdom. And he taught about the Lord Jesus with boldness and without hindrance. And so the word spread, and what we read in verse 13 is what we should expect. That the word spread throughout the imperial guard. Everywhere he was, it grew. It, it, it brought people into the kingdom. And frankly, unbelievers will continue to tell lies about believers. So what is the typical view of a Christian put forth by the media. Aren't we narrow-minded, uneducated, hillbilly folk? Aren't we ignorant, 
And believers have always done this. Do you remember they treated Jesus the same way? You remember even Pilate said, this man is not doing anything deserving death. He knew they had no case against him. And the good news is that lies are being exposed as this happens. Many of you know the name Andrew Brunson. You know the pastor from America who has been taken in Turkey, uh, accused of espionage and of all things, uh, being an accomplice in the failed coup in 2016. Our president and vice president have really gone to great lengths to free this man. He spent over 20 years as a missionary in this country. He's an ordained evangelical Presbyterian church pastor and a graduate of Wheaton. Does this really sound like a spy to you? Imagine that. You know, all this time we thought that Wheaton was this great uh, exporter of missionaries like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Who would have thought they were really just an arm of the U.S. government? That is absurd. It's laughable. And yet it can infuriate you when you think about it. Good men, maligned and slandered. But there's a subtle point here regarding this slander. The truth will come out. People will see your life and your witness. This is what he says in verse 13. People are finding out the real reason for my imprisonment. It's leading them to Christ. It never ceases to amaze me, though. And this is the persecution you and I have probably experienced. This people, Christians, will bear the scrutiny with the thoroughness of an MRI. They will be studied and critiqued, particularly pastors, to find any weakness And then that weakness will be magnified and everything else will be forgotten. They did this to Jesus. You remember in the Gospels, Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees were watching him. Same thing with Paul in Galatians 2. They entered the church to spy on him. They'll do the same thing to you and I. They'll watch you. Not all, but many will watch you to look for dirt, for criticism. We have a, a pastor we support in Pakistan. Uh, We don't know his real name. We probably couldn't pronounce it. But he has been arrested and beaten and falsely charged on more than one occasion. He says that regularly uh, area local newspapers will write articles about him saying he's an undercover agent for the CIA. Ridiculous lies. Frankly, when you get angry and upset, be encouraged by passages like this. The gospel spreads God's truth. And clarity is brought. Jesus says there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And if not in this life, Scripture assures us the truth will be known in the day of judgment. That God will bring every word and deed into judgment, whether good or evil. And we get a sense of Paul's struggle with this in the latter verse 20 of our passage. Notice, notice he says, it's my eager expectation and hope to not be ashamed. The truth will be known, and yet, maybe not in this life. He has that expectation, that hope, but he's submitting it to God. He finds comfort in this. But as we move on, there's one other reality, important truth regarding persecution that we see here. I think it might be more offensive than anything else. You might think of this persecution as that that comes within the church. Uh, Notice verse 15, it introduces this. Paul says, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He goes on in verse 17 and describes them as proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Later in Philippians 2.20, he says of Timothy, 
I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. They all seek their own interest. It's a sobering reality that there are preachers of the gospel that circulate in the church and they're regarded by many as faithful and yet they're self-serving hypocrites. They're ambitious. And you may wonder, well, where are they? Who are they? How do we know them? Well, let me point out one thing I don't think that they are. This is not who Paul is talking about. These are not people preaching a different doctrine or a doctrine in pure gospel. And there are several places in Paul's writings where he mentions false teachers, but this is not one of them. Uh, Galatians 1, he talks of those who, who preach a different gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, people preaching another Jesus, but that's not them. These people come from within the circle of faith. He's referring to the timeless problem of rivalry in ministry, of personal ambition. Verse 15 makes it clear. Notice, again, some preach Christ from envy and from rivalry. Probably he's referring to people in Rome, preachers in Rome, who were well known, at least until he showed up. Uh, their notoriety suffered when Paul, you might say, grabbed the headlines, the spotlight. Uh, word was spreading throughout Rome about this prisoner, about this Christian pastor, and their names were being mentioned less and less. They were losing star power and add to this what we read in verse 14 that many other believers were emboldened by his example and you have a new pastor a new name and they're in Rome think of Rome it's the greatest city in the world they didn't want an outsider coming in and taking the spotlight I'm reminded here many of you know the Reverend John Paul in Haiti when he first started in Haiti establishing a church preaching Many people came to hear him, left other churches because he was preaching the gospel. And he was uh, beaten and robbed. But not just by any person. Several pastors did that. You know, ministerial rivalry is timeless. They envy Paul. He's a rival to them. And I think it's been true throughout church history. It's no secret George Whitfield in the 1700s. Uh, gathered hundreds, thousands of people came to hear him preach, and yet the Church of England, it, many of its churches would shun him, wouldn't let him come in. Perhaps for many reasons. One, he was taking the limelight. And Paul describes their motives very clearly. And yet while they preach a sound doctrine, they do it for far different reasons. I think you can see this today in any denomination that uh, centers around the popular well-known pastors. Um, think about how electronic media has only really furthered to exacerbate this. It's not just pastors. Frankly, uh, if you're an online Christian, you have enough people reading your blog. That's really all it takes. And people, notoriety, their ambition uh, often they do something I think similar to Paul's opponents here they preach the right gospel and yet for the wrong reason well, how does this apply to missions let me give you two or three simple things one beware of thinking that a missionary is godly simply because he's reformed because he has a biblical theology and there is a danger to evaluate a person's character his fruitfulness even exclusively because of his doctrine. And I think this applies to churches and missionary organizations. It's easy 
to be deceived into thinking that just because a church organization has the right denominational label that we ought to send them our money. And I'm amazed at how much money is given to organizations, frankly, whose sole qualification is just brand recognition. Uh, You'd be surprised how many well-known Christian teachers and preachers have risen to prominence by little more than what we see here, self-promotion, networking, and brand marketing. It's not that hard for people. You'd be surprised at how many Orthodox Christian organizations, how much they charge for you to support their missionaries. We can't presume to know a motive, but you can follow the money. You can look into details. I fear even in other cases and missions, people who started out well, maybe drifted into what we see here. Why are you doing what you're doing? Well, sometimes, not always, sometimes though, you can make a stable living as a missionary, uh, even as a pastor. Uh, There can be a financial motive. Paul would ask us a simple question. Why are you doing what you're doing? Is it because of attention? Is it a stable living? Uh, Is it to advance some other name? Or is it for Christ? Is it for his kingdom? You may be wondering, well, what exactly were these preachers doing to Paul? You know, how were they afflicting him in his imprisonment? Well, admittedly, we don't have much information here, but verse 15 makes it clear that they're motivated by self-interest, by envy. And they, make their, they view Paul as a competition, and they, they frankly are delighted that he's on the sidelines. And they seem to be taking advantage of this opportunity to advance their ministries while he's in prison. I'm sure that if Paul allowed it to, this circumstance would be a source of great pain. He had suffered for years. Uh, he had endured untold amounts of persecution at the hands of the Jews. And what, it, what good had it done? What did he have to show for it? He was in prison. And remember again verse 20. He says, this is my expectation and hope not to be put to shame. Yes, he thinks it's going to work out, but he, he also hopes We never know for sure how it will end. This was a human just like you and I. And what he's saying ultimately is that your hope, my hope, has to be far beyond what we see. And notice uh, in the last two verses his response to these hypocrites uh, who would seek to add to his affliction to advance their own cause. Notice his joy in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Don't you love that phrase? What then? You know, what of it? Who cares? You know, he's saying, are you honestly worried about me? Because I'm not. You have to love this attitude. It's not a cavalier, complacent attitude. It actually takes us back to the source of his contentment in verse 12. His contentment isn't tied to his own success or reputation. He sees the outcome, the results that Christ has proclaimed. And he knows what many preachers don't know even today. There's really only one person essential to the mission. We need the Holy Spirit. He knows that the Spirit of God will convert the lost. Even if the message comes from selfish, hypocritical ministers. The power of the gospel is not in the man preaching it. I remember several years spending a couple of months in Bangkok, Thailand on college campuses, we would share the gospel with Buddhists. And many didn't speak English, so we would have translators who were Buddhists. And I remember hearing on more than one occasion 
of one Buddhist leading another Buddhist to Christ. The power is not in the messenger. And I'm not saying we ought to ordain Buddhists to preach the gospel, but the only essential person in missions is the Holy Spirit. Paul knows this. It's his comfort, his joy, even while he's in chains. He had a singular focus in times of abundance and in difficult times. His contentment was Christ-centered. John the Baptist had this too. You remember John's disciples came to him. They were worried because Jesus was taking away their notoriety. That Jesus and his disciples seemed to be rising and they were losing disciples. You remember what John said? He said, he must increase. I must decrease. He had that same focus. It's a great reminder in mission to have a Christ-centered focus that trusts the Holy Spirit. Certainly we work. We pray, we give, we serve. And yet, not one of us are indispensable, but only the Holy Spirit. But we do remember that it's not our money, not our children, not our vacation plans, not our retirement. It belongs to the Lord. It's, if they're blown away tomorrow, his kingdom will go on. His kingdom will expand and, and your future with it. And so, what a comfort to know. That this inheritance is not tied to any stock market or index, but it's laid up in heaven waiting for us, where rust will not fade. We hear echoes of this in Paul's final chapter here. Paul says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So remember, as we close... Persecutions are normal. The gospel continues to spread. Lies will be exposed. Persecution will gather more. And even hypocritical ministers won't hinder the growth of the word of God. And may that be our hope and comfort as we pray together. Father, we thank you for your sufficiency. We thank you that we come by your authority. And that you have promised us by that authority of the nations, we pray, Father, that we might be faithful, that we might joyfully serve you, that we might see every circumstance of our life through that reality that the Holy Spirit is working his will in and through us, gathering his kingdom. And Lord, may that day come quickly, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.